Welcome to Revelation Warning, a weekly podcast hosted by Pastor Robert Thibodeau as he interviews prophecy experts from around the world as we discuss current events in relation to Bible prophecy. All of this is to give the world a final Revelation Warning. Now, here is your host with this week's guest, Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hello everyone everywhere, Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Revelation Warning Podcast. We are so blessed that you're joining us here today. Scott Wright is back with us again today. Scott's been teaching us about the different ages of the church and and significant things the Bible in history has to say about them. Amen. If you missed any of the preceding episodes where we covered the church ages one through five, go back to the archives and find them. You'll be amazed at the information Scott has been sharing with us. Amen. Scott is helping us to understand each of the different ages of the church and why they are so significant, especially as we look at the modern day church age with all the societal problems that we're facing today. Now, today, We're going to be looking at the sixth age of the church as depicted in Revelation chapter 3. And to do this, help me welcome back to the program, Scott Rice. Scott, it's so good to have you back on the program today, buddy. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be here, Bob, and look forward to our our fun expansion of the ages of the church. Amen. Amen. Now, give us a brief overview of the reason why we should be aware of the different ages of the church and, and why is this important for Christians today? Well, first of all, to understand what's going on, we need to understand how the church has developed over the years. And one of the most exciting aspects of this is that if we look back at how the church has developed over the centuries, then it's going to show us why the church is where it is today. Mm. And one of the things that that we're doing here in this podcast that we've been discussing and what I'm going to be writing about is that it's not only that we're studying directly just the ages of the church, but we're running it in conjunction with that particular part of world history. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pr- maybe a little bit why it's a little bit different than what some people, when they like to look at this, I run it in alongside and look at the comparisons of what's going on with the church, what's going on just in basic history and seeing how those tie together. And why that's important that we look at all aspects of history, not just exactly what was going on just inside the church. Yeah, and so we're we're gonna get a we're gonna get a flavor of that, and and you can see when you look at it in that perspective, you can see how God is interacting in all of it. Yeah. It's not He's not just interacting inside the church, and I think sometimes we think that, but that's <laughs> not true. God is interacting with the world. Amen. In all of his world. Yeah, exactly. And we have to remember. And of course, if you go to my first episode of my actual podcast, I it's called the owner Mm -hmm. and it talks about how God owns us and owns everything in the earth and all that, uh, all that you see created. So it all belongs to him. Yeah. Amen. You know, as you were saying that, that, you know, God is the one who's, you know, the orchestrator of all these things. And, and I just, I've been doing some studies on, uh, this, uh, asteroid called Apophis that's scheduled to arrive in 2029 or something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the scientists all there say, oh, no, it's going to miss us. You know, it, it, it's not going to hit us, but yet it's going to be within like 2,500 miles of the atmosphere or something. You know, I mean, it, sure. You know, and when you're dealing with space, 
I mean, you know, that's not just a near miss. That is, you know, someone took a swipe at you with a razor blade type thing, right? Exactly. And, Barely so, missed you. Yeah. And if you stop and think about it, would they come out and say, oh, yeah, world's going to end April 13th, 2029? <laughs> 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 I mean, that, that would not, you know, they wouldn't tell you that, you know, if it was going to happen, you know, type thing, because that's what they were saying when it, when it was first discovered, this thing's going to impact her. And then, you know, like three days, oh, no, no, no. Our calculations say it's going to barely miss us, you know, but, uh, but the point is they're, they're saying, you know, this asteroid came from the deepest regions of the galaxy and all this stuff. Right. Well, if that's the case, that means God set it on that trajectory for a particular purpose you know? exactly so, and that's and that just thought popped in my mind with you're saying how he orchestrated all these things to the finest detail and all that because you know if that's the case then god's the one that started that asteroid or whatever comet two comets impacted each other that created the asteroid and you know all that was orchestrated by god because he created the stars and all it was you know amen so amen to anyway. that. Praise God. Anytime, last time you shared that the fifth age of the church ended with the first great awakening. Now, it was also one of the, the, the longest church age, last almost a thousand years. But let's dive now into the sixth church age. And if the fifth church age ended with the first great awakening, does that mean that the sixth church started with the first great awakening as well? Yes. And of course, and I'm glad you bring that up. The the Fetterlane Society had a meeting, and there was actually on December 31st, 1738, they met in London at their normal location. And um, if you read my book, eventually when I put that out, I'll, I'll say exactly the location of it and the address and all that kind of stuff. But what happens is, is these guys start and, and they basically, they're coming together in a prayer meeting. And so this is going to be a very long prayer meeting. And this prayer meeting lasts for almost a day. I mean, this thing goes throughout the evening, all the way into the late night, into the early morning. And then finally, and if you go back and you look at the, there's an entry uh, into uh, one of the uh, Wesleys, one of their, and they were one of the uh, men that were there, John and Charles Wesley. But inside John Wesley's journal, he writes about this meeting and he said on that early morning that uh, there was about 60 of them there. And at about, it was about three o'clock in the morning, London time. And it, this happened in London. There was some type of a movement within that group. And it says about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy and many just fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. All 60 men did that at the same time. Yeah. And the spirit moved upon them. And that that is a lot like what's described in Acts 2. And so this, what's going to happen is from here, the great awakening is going to explode. But it's this prayer meeting that it starts. This is the kickoff. Now, there are guys like a gentleman by the name of Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. who had already been preaching, and some of the things that he had been preaching really helped lay some of the groundwork for this to, to expand and to go and to take off. 
but the Wesleyan brothers eventually the uh, Methodist will the Methodist movement will explode through this process. Mm-hmm. We're going to have guys like George Whitefield, who quite frankly might be arguably the most influential and important American or, or human being in American history. And I know everybody's like, what George Whitefield, who's that, you know, <laughs> well, he was friends with Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. And as we move into the discussion, one thing that's going to happen is the great awakening takes off. George Whitefield is going to travel further and more than any other person and preach more to spread this, mm-hmm. to spread this movement. And he is going to come over to the colonies. Now the United States and he is going to spread this all over the United States, or it had been the colonies then. And yeah. this awakening, what what's so significant about it, Bob, is that it sh- it was a shift from the control boundaries and basically control structures of the church to the focus on the individual. Amen. Amen. And it's and this is the change right here. It's this. The Great Awakening shifts that thinking. It was already happening with the Renaissance and a lot of the philosophers that that we, you know, when you study U.S. government, you go back and you study some of the philosophers, and, and I actually teach this stuff. <laughs> you'll get some of that, uh, some of that flair. But George Whitefield's message adds the spiritual component to it. Yeah, it's not just a human philosophy. But there is a spiritual movement of this that infiltrates the colonies and sends the colonies an upward. This guy was preaching almost every single day, okay? And he would travel further than anybody else. And it's it's crazy to think back then, especially, and this is in the 1740s, how far he goes and how much he travels. And he'll go from town to town literally preaching every day. And all these different uh, individuals that were involved in this, it wasn't just him, will spread, will spread this message. And of course, it's the message of the good news of Christ, but it's also the movement of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. This is going to give rise to a lot of the denominations and even kind of the non-denominational movement. Now, this is going to lay the groundwork for how we see the church now. And, and so it's going to spread this. Uh, type of liveliness that will awaken the church. So the dead church, which is the fifth age, is now becoming the live church, the spirit-filled church yep. of the sixth age. And, and that's a good way to think of it. Some people call it the passionate church, the church of Philadelphia, brotherly love. And it's not going to last very long, but the Holy Spirit is going to be in complete and total control of this movement. Hey, Amen. How long did the sixth church age last? A hundred years. One hundred. Wow, that is short. As compared almost to right churches. Yeah. yeah, almost right to the year. Oh, really? Wow. So there's going to be two movements here. So there's going to be the first one. Then after that, as it dies off, the American Revolution is going to happen. Mm. We're going to have these revolutions born out of this. So then after you, the revolution, why do you think it was so short as compared with the other ages. Well, it's an interesting that you bring that up. There's a guy by the name of Lance Lambert that gives us an interesting quote that I love that probably sums this up best. And you and you probably, if you think, step back and think about any, any movement that has ever happened through the Holy Spirit that's been on a large scale, this always takes place. 
He says, every movement of the Spirit of God in church history has died within a generation or two. It has been formalized, crystallized, institutionalized. Man has taken over. It is no longer a matter of the Holy Spirit and divine resources, divine qualifications, divine anointing, but it is man's resources, man's organizing ability, man's promotion, and man's propagation. Yeah. Man takes over. That's yep. what always happens. Yeah. And that's why. And number six is the number of man as well. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. So, you mentioned that's that, what happens. You mentioned this was a revolution of sorts. Well, didn't that really happen already? I mean, we covered, you know, the invention of the printing press and Luther nailing the thesis to the church door and all that. What makes this a revolution? Well, what makes this a revolution is that this becomes a revolution of governments, mm. the way people are governed. It is no longer going to be about monarchies, but there's going to start being a shift to the power of the people, the power of the voice of the individual. And the United States, the French Revolution had just happened. Matter of fact, this prayer meeting, many call this the prayer meeting that saves Britain because the French Revolution has happened. And some of that, those feelings are spreading throughout Okay, they're spreading throughout England, mm-hmm. and they it's kind of a sense that maybe England is on the brink of the same type of revolution that the French had had. Oh, really? Wow. And almost into anarchy. And this meeting, and then what comes out of this meeting, these guys preaching and all that will actually help calm that down in England. Mm-hmm. So it's going to calm that particular shift to potential anarchy. Yeah. In England. And then it's also going to, after it phases out the first great awakening phases out, it's going to give rise to the American revolution. Oh. It's going to be a part of that for sure. And George Whitefield, who spreads this throughout the United States and the colonies, there was other guys too. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't just him. He becomes friends with the guy that you're going to be well familiar with. And his name's Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Amen. Who, who is influence of independence the declaration of independence and how he helped tweak it after Jefferson had wrote it and Adams had been wanting them to declare it and pushed for that. Well, those three guys are very instrumental, obviously in that process. And, and Benjamin Franklin had been wanting this for a long time. Mm he had served in London. Nobody knew England like he did. Well, he knows George Whitefield. He has an influence on Franklin for sure. And you can read about their relationship also, and this is important, Benjamin Franklin's going to have a huge impact on our U.S. Constitution. You know, he's he's kind of the great negotiator. This guy is a master ambassador, maybe probably the best ambassador we've ever had in this country. And it's some of that influence of George Whitefield helps develop some of his idealisms and will also formulate and help some of the idealisms of our founding fathers. George Whitefield. And it's going to not just expand just in that time period, but across American culture. I mean, we even, to some degree, even though he did hold slaves, on some levels, we have to hold a debt of gratitude for civil rights that comes from George Whitefield because it's the focus on the individual rising up in the spirit of God. So while some of the people of that time period, just they just saw slavery as just something that was there. It was also his idealisms that will infiltrate into society, even with minorities. 
And so we have to give a debt of gratitude to George Whitefield for a lot of these things, because that, that influence will carry, it will continue to carry even after the American revolution, even after we become the United States, even after the U S constitution is formed and we form under that particular, uh, uh, form our government under the U S constitution. Yeah. The, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the, this meeting and took place in England and that basically, you know, could have been what saved England, you know, great Britain and all that. But I was just thinking back to what we talked about before, uh, about the church of England, you know, and the, the King being the head of the church and all that, how yes. did, uh, this prayer meeting affect any of that? Well, the thing is, is that obviously the, the sentiment and the movement of the time, and you'd had to have been there to maybe fully grasp it, but the sentiment of the movement of the time is that the people were tired of being ruled by a monarch. Okay. And so they were tired of being ruled over by quite frankly, not only a parliament, but a parliament that was being bought by the British East Indies trading company. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot of what was going on. Well, this particular movement brings a different mindset to England. It does. I mean, you, you think about it, you, you can watch it in an individual when somebody truly receives Christ and they have completely let it take hold in their life. You see the change. Mm -hmm. Now imagine this happen in, thousands and thousands and thousands of people across all these towns in England and in the city of London, which is by far the the most powerful and probably the most, and the most technological advanced of that day. Yeah. So imagine that the change that that would have brought. And then, and in the colonies as well, because they viewed themselves as English citizens right at that time. And they were. So imagine this sentiment that comes from that that level of change, you know, it's, it's almost like when you're in a church and you see three or four people receive Christ. And then of course they're going to get baptized. And then you really see the changes in those people. Well, um, again, put that on a scale of just hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Amen. And that's what, and that's what happens And it. And it also brings out the spirit of individual. You know, it's the individual, it's the focus on the individual receiving salvation. It's not through the confines of the church. And I will tell you that it's a double-edged sword. Some of the confines of the church are going to melt away after this. And that is a double-edged sword. You know, there's, there's going to be a lot of good things from that, but there's going to be some other issues that will, we could discuss all day about, um, and things that we see even now today, because the confines of the church have melted away. But that focus on individuals receiving Christ, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, that ideal is going to, that is going to be a game changer. It's going to be a game changer. It's also, it's, it's sort of a tipping point that we're heading towards the end here. Yeah. And that the spirit is going to move and, you know, we're going to see, we're going to see people start prophesying. They're going to see all kinds of things that they would have never imagined. The Wesleyan brothers before this were very methodical. That's why they were called Methodist in their action. It was, it was, it was all about what they did. 
But when the Holy Spirit takes hold of them and they're doing what they're doing, and then you add the power of the Holy Spirit to that, that's gonna that's a game changer. That's a yeah. change in the way that you express yourself and the power that you get from doing the right thing. Amen. Amen. You know, it's it's just gonna embolden them to do more and to speak with more power, more authority, and obviously and the Holy Spirit moving in front of them, right. you know, because the, at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's the one that makes this happen, not us. Yeah, right. And I think that's important to remember. And and we're going to see that come full. We're going to see that culminate here in this age. And this is important because there's going to be two awakenings. There's actually going to be three. The third one's not going to have the impact that the other two have. So we're going to have the first one, and then we're going to have kind of a period of settling down and that's where the american revolution happens and all this and then we're going to form another government this can be another one happen at the very end of like the 1700s mm-hmm. and then that's going to start to die off in the mid 1830s mm-hmm. and so what i want to talk about now is to talk about why what happens to make that die off all right and it is going to lead into the era that we live now so this is what signifies the end of the sixth church age. Yeah, and it's quick. So if you dial back to the 1830s, the 1830s are going to be a time of immense growth in technological advances in communication and transportation. Here's what's going to happen. So if you dial back to like the War of 1812, and a lot of the things that are going on in Europe and a lot of the wars going on, people are getting tired of war. Mm-hmm. And, but these Western European powers are still trying to advance and colonize, and that still continues on. But what's happening is, is the people, people are getting left behind. They really are. And, and we start getting, and in the United States, after 1820, once the Monroe Doctrine takes effect, the United States and Europe kind of become a, two separate entities, finally. They really do. Europe and U.S. affairs, we become basically neutral to them. You know, we're not going to be involved in theirs. They're not going to be involved in us. And that is a big deal because what's going to happen is, is now we're going to see the total picture of American society start to grow because everybody in America is trying to better themselves. Well, when people do that, that's when technological advances explode mm-hmm. because the people, you know, there's some people trying to make that happen and everybody has the opportunity to do that. And you can go back during that time period and watch all these advances. And the 1830s is when a lot of this stuff goes mainstream. So here are some of the things that go mainstream railroads go mainstream in the United States and then England and then the rest of the world. And, and it happens the United States and England is pretty simultaneous in that. So you'll have some things such as using steam power that will really start to take hold. Well, if we dial back to 18 and I'm just looking on my list here at 1838, all right, the SS Sirius, on April 4th to April 22nd and the Great Western, April 8th April to April 23rd, are the first steamships to offer passenger service between Britain and the United States. That's a big uh, deal. Yeah, yeah. Now we just got people going back and forth, and we got steamships yeah. that can carry them fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. 
we're not just talking about crossing the continent eventually in the in, with the railroad yeah. which eventually will happen in the in the late 1860s when that finally gets finished and we're going to cut down a 6 month trip and make it 6 days or less well guess what now i mean we got steamships taking people back and forth from london to the united states how long other was parts the average trip for those steamships um well from those the average trip was it would take usually about 14 15 days yeah and how I mean, that's was, a lot long, of time. How long was the sailing trip? That that's like a, a good question. Months? I mean, I'd have to go back and look at my dates, but what, what did the Mayflower take two months? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was brutal. Yeah. And, and not if having, stuck, I mean, if you got stuck in one of them dead water areas where there's no wind or anything for a few yeah. days, you're just kind of there, you know, exactly. And you're trying to, yeah, you got no wind and you're not yeah. inside the, uh, you know, the ocean gyre that's moving yeah. you. Yeah. Well, Steam allows you to plow right through plow some through. of those areas yeah. Amen. with no, with no issues. And plus they had sailed so much of that area. They had most of that fairly well, na- uh, you know, Charted. through navigation, yeah. they knew where they were going. Yep. Amen. So, wow. I mean, yeah. so that happens in 1838. Another thing that happens in 1837, which is a huge year is for the advancement and the implementation of the telegraph, which now allows people to communicate from long distances. And then on January 11th, 1830, the first public demonstration of the telegraph happens. I mean, wow. Yeah. Well, also 1837, you've heard of the company Procter and Gamble. Yep. It's founded in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that will become the world's largest consumer packaged goods company, which it still is. Yeah. We call them PNG. I mean, Mm -hmm. Procter and Gamble is still. (laughs) So, so imagine the enormity of that. And then in 1838 in May, the people's charter is drawn up in the United Kingdom that demands universal suffrage, the right to vote for all citizens, regardless of race, ethnic group, or religion in world's most pop powerful country at that time. Mm. And so that that won't necessarily take hold yet, but it now it, it's it's now rising and being pushed for, which will eventually lead for that uh, for for suffrage, which is the right to vote, will eventually expand. And that will be eventually be accepted in Britain. Well, also 1838, the first act of women's suffrage. All right. Is it the Pitcairn Islands? I'm excuse my way I pronounce that are acquired by Britain and is the first place in the world where women are granted and sustained as being able to vote. Mm -hmm. That'll happen in 1838. Proteins are discovered in 1838. Uh, The two source hypothesis hypothesis which was first articulated in 1838 by christian herman weiss is a first time of a criticism of the bible and i'm not talking about making the being critical of the bible i'm talking about breaking down theological arguments and being able to use it in a different way so you can and i'm not going to get deep into this but you guys with apologetics and all of those things, you can dive into that and learn. And actually what he was doing was making the argument for the Bible and its validity even stronger. And he did that. And that was his goal through this. So you can, you can learn to read about that part of it. Um, You can research on January 9th, the French Academy of Sciences introduced basically photography. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all these things, the steam shovel, 
1839, February 24th, 1839, William Otis receives a patent for the steam shovel, the first machine to be used for lifting and moving materials such as rock and soil used in public works and massive earth projects. Yeah. Um, what, what was happening here? And then there's this. Now, this is the event. Now, there, you say, okay, there's all these things, but there's a trigger event here. So the trigger event that switches us from the sixth age of the church, sixth age of the church till now is the coronation of Queen Victoria. Here's why this is. Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, they are going to bring a monumental shift in the monarch. Monarchs were always about control up to that point. But what's going to happen is society changes. They are going to learn not only to be that stable voice in the government, and obviously promoting Britain and, and the continuation of their government, but they are going to become those first monarchs that really become the voice of the people for, for human rights. Those type of things. You can go back and read about, about those two, okay? And you can read about their uh, Queen Victoria's rule and about her husband. I mean, he speaks out against slavery. And I mean, there's all these things that go on. And, you know, making conditions better for people who didn't have much, the poor, all those things and, and making working conditions better for them and living conditions. And, and I mean, you can go back and read about all this stuff and it's well-documented, obviously ever so many people have written about them, followed them. That becomes a huge thing. And it's during this time of this, t- and I always kind of find it interesting how the more advanced we become technologically, the more people want to control their own destiny and it just becomes a natural part of what happens. Well, what eventually comes out of all this is that the normal everyday, the normal individual, and we'll have eventually have the middle class rise up and, and usually kind of in the early 1900s that will happen. But the reason this becomes such a big deal is because normal people are eventually going to get to start to live in a freer way, but not just in freedom from their tyranny of their government, but also in how they conduct their lives. They're not going to be, it's not, everything's going to be hand to mouth Mm -hmm. or you're working 17, 18 hours a day, you know, and you're going to be able to live, you know, things are going to become cheaper because of this. There's going to be more appeal to the masses. And as that happens, people are going to live a little more closer to royalty. You're not going to have such a divide between the rich and the kind of in-between rich and poor. And even even in our country, poor people, their level of living is going to rise Mm -hmm. from what it was. I mean, it's just going to change. And that really is what brings on the Church of Laodicea because... What the Church of Laodicea is, is it's kind of the lazy church, and it's a church of opulence. Mm. Well, mm-hmm. think about how yeah. easy life is for us. I mean, we live it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're all a bunch of Burger King babies. We want it our way. And yeah. we can have it our way because things are so easy. I mean, you can get on YouTube and figure out how to do anything. Yeah. You know, you can, you can go down to the store for really cheap and buy something that you can do stuff with change, build things, 
in a fairly cheap way. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we finance things, it is not hard. The way the government hands out stuff and projects and, you know, through grants and through just giving, yep. it's just, it's just a different society that we live in. And it's not like the rest of the wor- the history of the world. You know, we think, look, we live in this and we all think that this is the way it's going to be or the way it's always been, because that's what we know. Yeah. But it has not always been this way. Mm-hmm. My grandparents told me a little bit different way, mm-hmm. you know, of how it was. And even for them, it is as bad as the Great Depression was, it wasn't as bad as the way a lot of people lived 300 years before them. Yeah, that's right. Amen. I mean, and so the just the standard, the basic standards of living are going to completely change in the 1830s. The 1830s is really when the Church of Laodicea takes off. Yeah. Amen. And you so know, my, my grandfather told me, you know, as I raised in Louisiana, moved to Michigan, working at car factories and all that, but uh, they decided they're going to go back and, and him and his brother were going to go back to Louisiana, work in the cotton fields, make some extra money and then come back home. Well, you know, there was no interstate system back in those oh. days. Right. And uh, he said a good day they might be able to make 25, 30 miles. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he said they, they had like six spare tires tied to the car. You know, <laughs> he said he could not put a gallon of gas in the gas tank. <laughs> you know? Wow. He tries squeezing it in. Best he can get is like nine tenths of a gallon. That's filling it all the way up to the neck. And he goes, and, you know, if, if they got, uh, like a downhill, you know, with the wind at their back, they may hit 15, 16 miles an hour. <laughs> wow. And uh, he said, when it started getting dark, they just pull over to the side of the road, find a tree. And that's where they spent the night, you know, and uh, you know, which is back, why the, which is why the train was still a very popular mode of transportation then. Yeah. But you know, back depression area, you know, they didn't even have the money for the train. Exactly. But uh, yeah, he said it took them two and a half weeks to get to Louisiana. Wow. And, uh, you know, I drove when I was working for Bernard Johnson ministries, we did a concert in Detroit and the next day after the concert, I, you know, after the concert that night, I went back to my dad's house, spent the night, got up in the morning and and drove back to Texas. I was in Texas in 24 hours, you know, and here it took him. I was thinking about that as I was driving on the interstate, you know, uh, it took them two and a half weeks to get down there. <laughs> and that's driving all day from sunrise to sunset. Oh <laughs> 20, 20. Oh, wow. Two and a half weeks to drive that far. To drive it's crazy though, miles. isn't it? Yeah. You stop and think about it. And, and that's what, one of the things he told me, you know, before he, you know, we were just sitting around talking this couple of years before he died. And he said, I've lived a blessed life. Is I got to see the first car. Yep. I got to see the first airplane. I got to see us walk on the moon. You know, he goes, who'd ever thought? <laughs> I know. Wow. But that's Just, what technology I mean, yeah. can do. You know? Exactly. And that's, and the 1830s is what gives way to all that. Yeah. Hey, man, that's why I wanted to relate that in. Cause you know, I, I got a firsthand testimony about that, you know? And, uh, so yeah. Praise God. So oh, imagine man. somebody. Imagine this, imagine being born and I, I've often wondered, so where would that, where had been the perfect age? Mm-hmm. So somebody who might've been born in the late 1850s, 
And they actually lived to be like 119, 120. Yeah. And had their faculties about them. All right. So they lived, say, from 1852, 50, we'll say 1852. And they died in 1972, mm. 1971. And there's a few people that lived that long. Oh, wow. Imagine being born right before the Civil War. Yeah. And dying in the 1970s, early yeah. 70s. Yeah imagine what all they saw yeah amen i mean they saw the civil war yeah and then they saw world war one yeah and then they saw world war two yep and the atom bomb yep planes yep cars they saw they were alive for every presidential assassination yeah they were alive for the uh, walk on the moon. They were alive while um, the world advanced in ways that were, you know, they the first light bulb. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I mean, not just the first plane, the first light bulb. Yep. You know, went from kerosene lamps to light bulbs. And I mean, think about all those changes, the interstate system of the 1950s with Eisenhower and what all that. Yeah, I can remember them building the interstate near our house, like because yeah. where our picture window was looked across this open field. About mm, the interstate is probably three quarters of a mile, maybe a mile away. And you know, I mean, I'm I'm like four years old watching these big, you know, move, earth movers and stuff out there. You know, and can't I, you know? I didn't know what they were doing. I was just fascinated because they were big trucks. <laughs> you know, exactly. But uh, you know, I remember. When they finally opened that stretch of the interstate, my grandfather took us in the car. We we're going to drive from where we were at in Marysville up to the Port Huron exit, which was about seven miles. And he was just so thrilled he could go, you know, 50 miles an hour and, you know, get up there in 15 minutes or so. You know, I know. <laughs> Before I mean, it was nah. like, hey, we're going to go to town. So we'll be back later tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, yeah. I mean, that's just, the way sociologically and culturally it just created changes that were unimaginable yeah, at that time. Amen. amen, amen. It did. Praise and so we'll, you know, when we have our next discussion, we'll talk about the seventh age of the church, which is yep, the one yep. we're living in now. Yep. And we'll, that may actually take a few episodes <laughs> and then we're going to do, we're going to have one where we talk about a timeline breakdown, which I amen. think is a, a good wrap up to it because it's going to give us some real perspective and it's also going to give us an understanding of how organized God is. Yeah. Just yeah. how, how well he had this planned. Amen. And so I think that's important that we understand that, yeah, but absolutely. At, one of the things we want to make sure that we understand is this, the sixth age of the church is short and it is a spiritual movement for sure. And it's a and it and it brings about both spiritual and governmental revolutions. Amen. And it changes. I mean, you can go back and look at the founding of all kinds of different denominations and things of that nature. A lot, not all, but a lot of that is going to come out of this time period. Yeah. Amen. And so, just uh, to wrap this up. Give us the time frames again, beginning and end of the sixth church age. So it's going to start December 31st, 1738 into January 1st, 1739, obviously with that, with that prayer meeting. 
and it is going to end on uh, in 1838 with the coronation of Queen Victoria. Amen. 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 Man, Scott, this has been so interesting, as usual. And if someone has a question or would like more information or possibly they want to reach out to you, do an interview like this, how do they do that? How can someone get in touch with you? Well, they can obviously go to my uh, uh, email address, gccgodcenteredconcept2038 at gmail.com. That's one way. And they obviously can listen to my podcast. And that information is listed on there as well. The God Center Concept. Amen. Amen. I'll put links all this in the show notes below. Folks, there's no doubt that we are living in what Jesus and historical Christian scholars have called the end times. And we're working our way through each of the church ages in order to give you a more thorough understanding of how all this fits together into what we're witnessing right now all around us. And, and Scott has a goal of launching this series on a large scale, you know, reaching churches and organizations with this curriculum that will change their churches forever from a simple institution into a movement. Praise God. He's also, as you heard, a podcaster. He has a truly great podcast called the God Center Concept. And you need to listen and subscribe to his podcast. Praise God. And, and he's also published a journal called God Center Concept Journal, making God's word my ways. I urge you to drop down on the show notes, click the links right there, order his book, be sure to subscribe to his podcast. And Scott, I want to thank you for taking the time to come back on the program today and share all about the sixth age of the church. I do appreciate it, brother. And thank you, Bob. Amen. Folks, that's all the time we have for today. For Scott Wright, myself, is passed by reminding you to be blessed. You have been listening to Revelation Warning with Pastor Robert Thibodeau and his guest expert on Bible prophecy as it relates to current events. This podcast is not designed to invoke fear, but concern. Help us to make everyone aware that the soon return of Jesus is close at hand by clicking the like, subscribe, and then share buttons below. Share this episode with your loved ones, friends, and coworkers. For more information on our ministry, please visit podcasterforchrist.com and be sure to come back next week for another episode of Revelation Warning.